you, Annette and Flossie. Yes, this is the carpenter, and it is the Son of God, fully human, fully divine, what theologians call the hypostatic union of, of uh, Christ, his full human nature, and full divine nature, not half divine and half human, fully human and fully divine, one encompassing the other in mystery, shrouded in mystery. Next week, and the next week, we will choose uh, to digress from the Song of Solomon for two weeks. And then after that, Junior Hill will be here for one of the three friend days that we'll be having on Easter Sunday and uh, April 14th, I believe it will be, another friend day. And let's see, there's a third one. Uh, what is it, Phil? Oh, the Easter musical this Sunday, yeah. By the way, there are still a few tickets for Sunday night. Uh, and a lot of you come back the second time. But uh, Sunday night, most every year, is the very best of them all. I sit through all of them. And by that time, they just let it all go <laughs> and sing it. But it's wonderful. It'll be wonderful. So pray during the week. So will you turn in your Bibles to the Song of Solomon, chapter 6. Some of you love this. Some of you despise it. Some of you don't like to talk about marriage or relationships. And uh, I'm getting all kinds of interesting mail. Um, one lady said, Sunday afternoons will never be the same again since you started preaching on Song of Solomon. I'm trying to figure out exactly what that means, but uh, perhaps you can figure with me. But in any event, uh, it is here, Pasagrafe Theonustis, all, pas all scripture, every single one of the whole scriptures is God-breathed. So there's not a part you can leave out. I didn't write this. This isn't from Playboy or Penthouse. This is the Word of God. Because God wanted the world to see a precursor, a prophetic word, if you please, about Christ and the church, God and Israel, what he's doing. And in that relationship of Solomon to the Shulamite woman, you see a picture, an example of how Jesus loves the church and what his attitude towards the church is. And thus, we husbands find comfort in that and encouragement. All Scripture is profitable. Don't say this Scripture is not profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, and instruction in right living. And this is instruction in right living. So we're going to look at the, uh, at the fifth of the seven songs. I call this one Repassioning repassioning, restoration after conflict, because last week Solomon and the Shulamite woman had had a little difficulty, a little spat. There was some distance between them. There was a dry spell. And you see how she, what action she took to reconcile. Now we're going to see after this distance and dry spell, how do we maintain, how do we go on maintaining and growing in a deep, long-term relationship? And this can be applied to friends, and it can be applied to a marriage, and it can be applied to, uh, to a husband and wife. It can be applied to parents and children. And that is, how do I maintain a long-term relationship? One couple who had done their honeymoon at Niagara Falls said, we got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout. <laughs> and we've been living at Niagara ever since the fire went out. Did the fire go out at the end of your honeymoon? 
Did you lose the fire somewhere down the road? (laughs) Have you lost it? Well, here's what Solomon says. He, from chapter 6, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 9, we see this song. It is one of the great songs Solomon wrote. He wrote 2,005 of them, and this is the greatest. And it's in a little verse or chorus that is comprised by these verses. And uh, here, this man who has just gone through a dry spell with his wife is now going to address the long-term issues because he is in this marriage for life. He's in this marriage for good. And what you're going to see is that he takes the top five needs of women, which we talked about several weeks ago. And, And do you remember what they were? Number one was the need for a spiritual leader and protector. Number two was the need to feel safe and secure. Number three is the need for intimate conversation. Number four is tender words and touch. Men, are you getting this in your mind? And the fifth one is time. Time. And all of these are revealed in the Song of Solomon, five basic needs. But in this song, he deals with number four. He deals with tender words and touch. Don't miss this, men. Tender words and touch, if you please. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. In the middle of this, he introduces the subject. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. So he's saying that out of all of the political marriages he had, And uh, I don't want to digress into polygamy, uh, but I know that God permitted polygamy in the Old Testament, but that was not his will. If that had been his will, he would have taken 60 ribs from Adam and made 60 wives for him. Amen? I can give you a lot of reasons why I don't uh, don't believe polygamy is good. Uh, One reason is this right here. That's one good reason why I'm not for polygamy. Can you think of a few others? (laughs) But he had 60 to choose from, and he chose this one. And listen to the language he uses. My dove, my perfect one, out of all the 60, my only one, my only one. Now, he is reflecting the love of God, and, and we really need to understand, but that before we get into the mechanical ways to meet each other's needs, we've got to look at what is this love all about. There are four things I want to show you about this love. He picked her out of all of those. Number one is the origin of love. Because all love comes from God. God is love. And he that loveth is of God, John's going to tell us several centuries later. He that loves is of God. All love comes from God. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. So who originated the love? I didn't find Christ. Christ found me. It's a misnomer when we say, I found Jesus. You weren't looking for Jesus. You were lost as a hoodow, dead in trespasses and sins. He came looking for you. He found you. And so love originates with God. And sir, if you're the man in the house and the man in the marriage, 
and you have originated love. You took the, the initiative, then the initiative remains yours in that marriage. You're to be the spiritual leader. You're to be the intimacy leader. You're to be the providing leader. I didn't say boss. I didn't say master. I said leader. There's a big difference, a huge difference. And so that's why you have some responsibility. Ladies kept asking me over the past few weeks, when are you going to give it to the men? Well, I've been giving it to them, and they haven't been receiving too well. We're going to try one more time. (laughs) The second thing I would say about love is notice its nature. Notice the nature of love. One of the greatest descriptions of love lies not in 1 Corinthians 13, but in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here Moses makes a statement that is a phenomenal statement about love and God's love. Verse 6, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. God didn't look down and say, you know, Gail Ann, I just think you're a terrific man. You're so terrific, I'm going to choose you. That's not what happened. God chose because of his love, not because of anything on our part. That's why salvation is of grace, through faith, by his mercy. You are the least of all peoples, Israel, but God decided he wanted to take a nation, a people, and he wanted to demonstrate how he could bless them so that the rest of the world would see what God would do for them if they would turn to him. And today, God has chosen the church, and he wants to pour out blessings on the church so the rest of the world can see how he blesses people who serve Christ and make him Lord of their lives. And God let you choose a woman. He led you to a marriage, and he gave you a wife, and that wife and you in your relationship are to be a testimony to the world around you so that the rest of the world, which has a distorted, decrepit, view of marriage can say, look at Fred and Lil, there's a couple I'd like to be like. There's something about their marriage that attracts me to Jesus. Look, I see our home just as I see the church and just as I saw Israel in the Old Testament. God pouring out his blessing to attract people to him. That's why marriage is important. That's why this is important. Go on to verse 8. But because the Lord loves you, Deuteronomy 7, 8. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage. On top of God's love, there is God's faithfulness, there is God's power and God's might, and there is God's justice and mercy. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant. And so if love comes from God and it's to be copied of God, we have a covenant to keep. There have been times you may have wanted to walk away from that marriage, but your will held you there. You'd made a covenant. Now, I know some of you have been the victim of tragic divorce, and I know some of you have been terribly hurt by it, and I'm not putting that down. I honor the fact that you've had to go through that, and I know that's painful to suffer the loss, but I'm just saying what the Scripture says, that God wants us to have a permanent covenant with marriage as, as, and, and our partners as much as lieth in you. And so we see the nature of love is in God's will. He willed and he chose, and therefore he kept his covenant. Now go on. What is the basis for love? Well, it's Romans 5, 8. 
if God sovereignly decided he was going to redeem mankind and he loved man, then the basis for that love is on will. If love is based on emotions, you and I are all in trouble. But if love is based on a will, God made up his mind. He was going to redeem the lost. So God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But that love rests upon his will. That's why we were chosen before the foundation of the world. The fourth thing I want to say about love is that uh, it is... uh, the purpose of love, and that is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, God blessed us with all blessings in the heavenlies. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 3, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption of sons. Before he had a chance to express his love, God had made up his mind. He was going to choose those who would believe and follow him to be adopted into the image of his son, to be holy and without blame before him in love. God is preparing a bride to be before him in eternity, spotless and blameless and in love. I can hardly wait. I worked half my life raising two daughters, half my married life, and then turned around and gave them to two guys. I gave them away. Can you imagine that? But there's one I'm going to keep. Do you know which one that is? Like Christ, who is preparing a bride for himself. The husband prepares the bride for himself. That's why you must pay attention to her, sir. That's why she is your treasure. This one's a keeper. This one's for you. Amen? All the men said, oh, come on, fellas. Let's get really excited about that keeper. This one's a keeper. Amen? Amen. Boy. Would you call 765-5542 if you couldn't say amen and ask for Dr. Chapman's office tomorrow morning? He'll love me for that. (laughs) So the purpose of love is to pour into each other like God poured into us so that we can be holy and blameless. I don't want a wife who's worse off when I die than when I married her. I want somebody who's richer. I want somebody who's closer to God, more intimate with the Lord. When I leave this world, I want to leave behind the best wife you ever saw, the most majestic, the most beautiful, the most honored woman in the whole wide world because that's my task with her. Now, Let's go down to the next part. And please be patient with me. Don't write me nasty letters this week. I'm doing the best I can to handle this as tastefully as I can. And uh, I tell you folks, God made us man and woman. We are sexual creatures. Don't deny that. The church has denied that long enough. And the world has taken advantage in a sex-sated society, and they talk about it, and we're scared to death to, to mention it. Did you hear what the pastor said? He said, Thigh. <laughs> so I'm going to handle this as carefully as I can. <laughs> Gloria Steinem said, Marriage is the concentration camp 
of life. No kidding. She said, marriage is the concentration camp of life. Women, she said, we have finally become the man we wanted to marry. (laughs) Now, you see, we've been talking about how the world's trying to obliterate the distinctions between men and women, and she's admitted it. We have finally become ourselves the man we can make. Now, do you know what drove Gloria Steinem to that kind of a statement? Men who would not take on themselves the responsibility that Christ took upon himself for the church. That's what did it. And so let's not hide this in the corner. We ought to boldly face the feminine agenda, and we ought to treat women just as God made them to be treated. Very important, royalty, high honor from the man who is their leader. Not like dirt, not putting them down. Words of tenderness are the words Solomon is going to use. Verse 13. The daughters of Jerusalem and the maidens that surrounded him called out, come on back. See, they'd separated because of the conflict. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. This woman was becoming so striking because of Solomon's love for her that even the Jerusalem daughters who wondered about her in chapter 1, now that she's married and they've, they've, this is later in their marriage, they've gone through conflict, now he's working at deepening the relationship with tender words. Now they're saying, oh, you're, you're beautiful. Chapter 1, they said, Who do you think you are? Chapter 7, or chapter 6 and 7, they're saying, wow, come on back, Shulamite. The years have been good for her. And she responds, what would you see in the Shulamite? She's speaking of herself. As it were, the dance of two camps, Mahanaim in the Hebrew. Now, do you remember what happened at Mahanaim? What happened at Mahanaim? Do you remember that that here comes... uh, uh, Jacob, he's got Rachel and Leah, and he's about to reconcile with his brother with whom he's been living in great conflict. He comes to the river Jabbok, which is just Transjordan, and and as he comes to the river, he puts Rachel and her friends and her family over here and her servants, and he puts Leah and her friends and her family over there and all of her servants, and he says, now I've got it made. I've got two camps. And if Esau comes from this way. I'm going to take off that way if he's not peaceful towards me. And I'll take Leah and her family and servants and go that way. And if he comes this way to see me, to meet me, I'm taking off this way with Rachel and her family. And he said in his heart, I sure hope it's Rachel. I sure hope it's Rachel. See, and Mahanaim was named Mahanaim because it means the place of two camps. Now, why would she say, do you want me to do the dance of Mahanaim? Two two things are important here. In the Middle East, it was not unusual for a wife to dance for her husband. It was a way of showing joy. And it was a way of demonstrating her love for him. So she said, you want me to dance? Shall I dance the the dance of Mahanaim? Do you mean uh, so that he can choose like Jacob did between Rachel or Leah? Do do you want him, is this a dance that I'm in competition with all those other 60s, 60 wives? He might choose me or he might choose one of them. Is that what you want? And it's as if he says, oh no, that's not what I want. I've already made up my mind. I love you. That's why she asked about the dance of Mahanaim. Is this a contest as to whether you love me? Is my love predicated upon how well I do a dance for you? And then she begins the dance in chapter 7, verse 1. 
Now, do you remember there's only one other time he described her? He described the Shulamite woman starting with her head. Notice this time he starts with her feet. And the next verses all illustrate how a husband deepens his relationship with his wife, how a parent deepens a relationship with a child, how a friend deepens a relationship with a friend, how the Lord Jesus deepens a relationship with his body, the church, through tender words. And there are 10 of them. Number one, he deepens his relationship through knowledge. He has deepened his relationship with her. It's not anything like what it was in chapter one or two. How beautiful are your feet in sandals. He notices her feet. He is knowing, when you know a person's feet, you have known everything about that person. My feet are ugly. Would you like for me to take off my shoes and socks and show you my feet? I mean, I've got old football toes here. And my feet are not beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the glad tidings of the gospel of peace. But my feet are not beautiful. You don't want to see my feet. But I know my wife's feet. Now, she doesn't like for me to touch her feet. She, don't, don't touch my feet. <laughs> but they're beautiful feet. And see what the, what the Solomon is saying to the Shulamite woman is she makes this dance. He's, he's starting here to indicate in the song to everybody else, this is, how, this is how I've grown with this woman. I know everything about her, including her beautiful feet. Have you given up on your marriage or have you given up on your relationship or are you just kind of coasting or has a conflict left you with nothing good to say? How about a tender word that lets her know you really know who she is, that you really know what she is, words of tenderness and touch? Secondly, notice what else he says in the next line. Oh, prince's daughter, he has elevated her. She was a lowly vineyard keeper. She was a very poor girl. He had a vineyard up just outside of Nazareth. She and her brothers worked in his vineyard. Now she's married to him. And he has loved her. They've come through conflict and trial. And their, their relationship has deepened so that he calls her a prince's daughter. He has not only deepened in his knowledge of his wife. He has deepened in his respect for his wife. And raises her to a majestic queenly status as a prince's daughter. And makes her feel like a million dollars. What tender words make your children feel important to you? Show them that you respect them. What tender words can you give to your wife that makes her know you respect her? What tender words can you give to a friend that lets him or her know that you respect them? Respect. He's deepened in his knowledge. He's deepened in his respect. But he's deepened in his intimacy. And the next line is, the curves of your thighs are like jewels. Whew. Now, remember that love is not just physical in the book of Solomon. Love is spiritual. And what he's trying to say is there's something spiritual behind every physical aspect of, of love. And as he watches his wife, he says to her, your, the curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. What a compliment to a woman. 
She may not have been that beautiful to everybody else, but to Solomon, she had the most gorgeous thighs, and thighs represent intimacy to the Hebrew mind. And he's saying, all these years, we have learned to go deeper with each other. We have learned to share truth. We've learned to be transparent. We've learned that we can say what we think. And in that transparency, we build each other up. Don't use your transparency and your intimacy to tear down. Use it to build up. Build up. I am slowly learning, and it's taking a long time. You don't try to correct a wife or criticize her when she's emotional. That's the wrong time. Do you understand? Most women, when they're emotional, need validation. That it's okay for them to feel that way. And you're better off just to try to listen and try to understand. But this is very important in intimacy, is to give the privilege of saying and speaking exactly how they feel. And then validate those feelings, sir. Validate those feelings, ma'am. Be sure that you, though you don't try to give him all the solutions, be sure that he or she understands that you are trying to understand. You know, I take great comfort in that Hebrews passage. We have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And sometimes when my heart is aching and it seems like I cannot take another step, I remember that Jesus went through this. And it helps me just to know that he's listening, that he's a patient, sympathetic high priest who has been through all of this. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched, meaning we have one who can be touched, the double negative. And that's the role of a husband in the home, that high priest who in intimacy gives the privilege of speaking and listening to his bride. And in turn, he shares resolutely. And so the next one is verse 2. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage, no blended wine. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Wow. But rather than being pornographic, that's deeply spiritual. Do you understand why that's spiritual? The navel is the very center of the body. For most people, it's within an inch or two of the middle of your body, depending on whether you're long-waisted or short-waisted. Now, he is saying, your navel is like a goblet holding wine. And your belly, which was the seat of all of life. That's why Paul talks about the bowels of love. The belly to the Hebrew represented the seat of life. He says, your belly is as a heap of wheat. Now, now listen to me. Israel had two great feasts. Two great harvests, rather. The harvest of grain and the harvest of grapes. And when the, the harvest of grapes and the harvest of grain was good, it was symbolic of great blessing coming from the Lord. Now, do you understand why he said that? He said, You're, you are a tremendous source of blessing to me. He's not describing her physically so much as he's saying, this, this woman, this wife is a source of tremendous blessing. I am blessed because of her. That's what he's saying. As Israel is blessed by the harvests. And suddenly when you see that, it takes on enormous significance, doesn't it? A wife is such a blessing. You know, the book of Proverbs says that uh, a godly woman never shames or disgraces her husband. 
But a woman who shames her husband is rotten to the bone. Don't ever shame him before your children. Don't ever shame him in public. I want to tell you, I have got mountains and mountains and mountains of blessing from my wife that I can never name because she has never, ever, ever shamed me in public. And I have by force had to be a public man most of my life and she could have embarrassed me hundreds of times, but she has never, ever shamed me. Nor have I ever heard her shame me in front of the children. Never. And if you must now, what she does when the children aren't there, that's another matter. And that's okay because I need it. But listen to me. Husbands speak tender words of appreciation because she is a blessing to you. She pours out blessing to you. If I were to ask you what's the greatest passage on a godly woman in all the Bible, what would you say? Tell me. Proverbs 31, that's what I'd say. You talk about a woman being a blessing. Listen, the same writer who wrote this about the, the belly of being a heap of wheat and the navel being a goblet for wine, listen to what he says. Verse 27, chapter 31 of Proverbs. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her... Nothing does me more good than just watching my children love their mother. And this week when we buried my father-in-law, it was a tremendous sight just to watch those kids love and support their mom. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. Some of you have made a career out of putting down your wife. Shame on you. You have emotionally abandoned her. And before God, you're going to be accountable for that. We must invest our lives in building up words of appreciation and words of blessing because she is a blessing and you are drawing richly from her fountain of blessing. The goblet and the heap of wheat are signs of blessing on your life because of her. Many daughters, verse 29, have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. A godly woman deserves everything you can give her, sir. Every blessing, every word of praise you can give her. Give her of the fruit of her hands. Let her own works praise her in the gates. Give her of the fruit of her hands. If we were talking about a man, we'd be talking about a paycheck. I'm getting my paycheck. This is the fruit of my hands. But a woman's fruit of her hands is often hard to nail down, so you must help her. Remind her of the value of the family and the children she raised. Remind her of the value she is to you. Word of appreciation. Fifth is a word of tenderness, gentleness. Do you see that in verse 3? Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Wow. Now let's talk about a gazelle for a moment. The gazelle leaps and jumps and dances and prances very tenderly as if it were a butterfly landing with sore feet. And it's beautiful to watch. And what he's doing, he is saying that this represents the tenderness of a woman. She has the capacity 
to be extremely tender when men are insensitive, most women generally, you can't make a total generalization, but are very tender. And men, if we could just be as tender with our wives as they are, you say, is that a fruit of the Holy Spirit? Well, it is in a way. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, gentleness. Gentleness with your wife. He's saying, I have deepened not only in my knowledge, I've deepened not only in my respect, I've deepened in my intimacy, I've deepened in my appreciation, but I have deepened in my tenderness. She has been an example for me as to how to be tender. Many a woman in this building has tamed many a wild man. And the women said, amen. You have no idea what effect you've had on him with your tenderness. The sixth thing is found in verse 4. Your neck is like an ivory tower. (laughs) He said that once before. Now let's look at it again. He's speaking, a tower is always a symbol of protection and defense. The way she held herself. Remember Jeroboam built a palace of ivory? Amos condemned it in his prophecy. And we even made up a song about it. Out of the ivory palaces into a world. Now, The fact is that ivory represented something extremely precious and a tower made of ivory is that by her value and her majesty, her neck with the impression it gives, the way she holds the head, he has deepened in his admiration for her. Your neck is like an ivory tower. You know, I just wish we could get a better picture and we have to infer it of what has happened to this woman since she married Solomon. But enormous things have happened, and she gets more beautiful every day. Story is told about a 14-year-old in Africa who grew up in a village, and she was a mess. Everybody despised her. Nobody loved her. She was critical, spiteful, mean, hateful. And when it came time for her to be married at age 14, that was the year she was supposed to get married Nobody in the village wanted to buy her for his son. You have to buy a wife. And nobody would buy her. Nobody wanted her. But there was a boy who came in from the bush. And he had no family. But he decided he would take the available woman that nobody else wanted. And I don't know. He bought her for a chicken or something like that. And uh, a year after they were married, he was saved. He became a Christian. And the missionary sat down and began to teach him how a Christian man ought to treat a Christian woman. And by the time that girl was 18 years of age, she was one of the most revered women in the village. She had become disciplined, beautiful, full of praise for others. And it all happened because a man loved Jesus into her life. So, he's deepened in his tenderness. He's deepened in his admiration. Look at the next one. He's deepened in his value. Your eyes are like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. <laughs> Over here by the gate of Bath-Rabim, there were two pools that were naturally spring-fed. And they were warm water. It was hot, hot water. And they were the hot tubs of Jerusalem. And people, if they had aching bones or sore bones, they would go and they would sit in the pools of Heshbon. And they would come out refreshed and feeling better. 
And do you understand what he's saying? Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon, the two pools that people are refreshed from. When I look into your eyes, you refresh me, you reinvigorate me, you repassion me. When I look into your eyes and I know who you are, he says, I have deepened in my understanding and my admiration for you. And I've deepened in my value. You are, I have a need. And when I look into your eyes, you meet that need, he's saying. Number eight, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. I probably would not try this one if I were you, sir. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. <laughs> the scripture says that the, the mountains, remember the psalmist said, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so is the Lord round about those who love him. Remember that? Now, the mountains that surround Jerusalem form a horseshoe. Horseshoe faces to the north. To the north is Lebanon. To the north is Damascus. To the north is Mount Hermon. And that huge mountain that stood there near the border of Syria and Lebanon and Israel was the Tower of Lebanon. And the only way you could come into the city of Jerusalem was to come to that valley at the horseshoe. And it looked north. And he's saying, this is the defense you have. You are my, like, a, like the, the Tower of Lebanon. You are, my, you are my strong point. Now, when he says that, he is saying, I have faith in you. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. And the nose looks beautiful to the loved one, no matter whether it's a tower or not a tower. And so he is saying to her, I trust you. I feel safe with you. As the Tower of Lebanon points towards the open, vulnerable section of Jerusalem, to make sure that Jerusalem knows of any soldiers or armies that are coming. I feel safe with you. I trust you. I have faith in you. I can't even imagine what it would be like to live with a woman you didn't trust. Number nine, the next tender word is verse five. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel. Now in Palestine, there's the coastal area and then the foothills and a few plateaus and then the mountains up here. And the mountains curve around in the north, just south of Tyre and Sidon, which are now in Lebanon, and, and come to a city, a modern city called Haifa. And there is Mount Carmel where Elijah uh, fought the, with the uh, prophets of Baal. And it stands over that harbor and over that, that, that sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and it guards like a sentry. Now, now get that picture that your head crowns you, somebody coming in from the sea, wanting to know what Israel is like, they see this huge, beautiful mountain. And he said, your head is so beautiful that it's like a crown. It's like Mount Lebanon when people, Mount Carmel when people come in to the harbor. Your head is so beautiful. I don't think he was speaking of physical beauty necessarily. Because if you love her, everything looks beautiful, doesn't it? Amen? <laughs> and then the tenth, uh, that's, that's pride. He says, I've deepened in my pride. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Now the tenth word, tender word, is the word honor. And the hair of your head is like purple. <laughs> like purple. Very valuable. A king is held captive by your tresses. You know, Solomon never fought 
wars. He was a man of peace. That's why God didn't let David build the temple. He said, you're a man of war. So I'll, I'll give you a man of peace who can build the temple. Solomon was a man of peace. So he didn't know what it was to be a prisoner of war. But he's, he uses the term. He says, I am so held captive by your tresses, by who you are, that I'm like a prisoner being held at war. I am captive to your tresses. That's what I think of you. That's what you are to me. Tender words need to come. Like the Lord Jesus. You know, I was thinking the other day, what were the sweetest words Jesus ever heard? What would you vote for? You know what my vote is? My vote is, God said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when you love Jesus, if you were God, you can see how he could give. When you love your wife, she has to give. You fill her cup. Now, those are tender words that are designed to sustain a marriage after the conflict. What do we do? Do we just sit idly by and let the years pass? No. We deepen we try to deepen our relationship in knowledge, in respect, in intimacy, in, in, uh, 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 in appreciation and tenderness and admiration and value and faith and trust and pride. J. Robertson McQuilkin was a great Bible teacher. He was the president of Columbia Bible College. He spoke at conferences all over the world. And in late, his late 50s, his wife, or her late 50s, his wife contracted Alzheimer's. For a while, he struggled to care for her and do what he could. But then there came a day. Boy, I honor this man for this. There came a day when he walked into his trustees and he walked into the chapel of the school and said, I am resigning immediately so that I can give myself full time to the care of my wife. She has given for me all these years and ministered to me, bore my children, raised them, supported me in a hundred ways, and I can do no less but now take care of her at this time of life. And he gave up absolutely everything so that he could shower his love upon that woman in her sickness. That's the kind of sacrifice that Jesus has made to have a holy church, a spotless bride. And if there's sin in your marriage or sin in your relationships, you can't be a spotless bride. And if you've never been saved, if you've never by faith trusted Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life, he's died at the cross in vain. But he loved you far more than Robertson McQuilkin loved his wife. What will you do? How will you respond to the example that Solomon shows us? This passage calls you and me to a new relationship with our spouses of tender words and loving kindness. He calls some of you to a commitment to the Lord Jesus to know Absolutely, beyond any shadow of a doubt that your sins are forgiven and you'll spend time in heaven with the Lord. And it is a call for you to be a part of that lovely bride.
that the Lord Jesus is seeking to make spotless and without blemish. Amen and amen. Let's stand in prayer. Father in heaven, speak to those who need to believe on the Lord Jesus. Speak to those who need to be a member of this church. They've been visiting a long time. And speak to men who may want to make a new commitment of tender words to their spouses and their children. In Jesus' name, amen.